closing argument. Walter Hudson. Pursuing happiness thoughtfully. 8 to 10 weeknights on Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. The recurring theme of the program has been introspection. Looking inward, looking at ourselves, examining the role that we play in the condition of our culture, the condition of our politics, the state of our public discourse, because, you know, it's it's easy and it's attractive and it's common. It's basic, as the kids say. It's incredibly basic to point to somebody else and say they're the reason why the world sucks. They're the reason the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's because of the immigrant. It's because of the leftist, which, you know, I, I, on a nightly basis, am railing against the left. I'm going to do so ad nauseum tonight, all right? <laughs> but nevertheless, nevertheless, the true cause, and this is the emergent theme on the program, the true cause of our moral decay, our cultural decay, our leftward slant, our leftward trajectory here in the United States of America and in the state of Minnesota and in your local city hall and wherever you find yourself, the true cause of it is that guy in the mirror, that gal in the mirror. It's us. It's the moral premises which we have chosen to accept. It's the the moral memes and the moral ideas that we have chosen to embrace and to the, the premises that we have adopted and accepted and decided, yep, this is, this is the basis upon which we're going to have the conversation, this idea that there's a common good that supersedes individual rights. There is, is something above and beyond liberty that is a value, a virtue that we ought to achieve through public policy. And as long as that's our premise, we're going to lose. As long as that's our premise that we need to take care of people, as the Senate Republican Caucus recently put forward as their top principle for the budgetary process here in the state of Minnesota, as long as we say that that's our, our number one objective is to take care of people, to take care of others, to serve some higher good, to serve a common purpose, then we're going to lose our rights. Because our the, the rights of the individual are never going to take precedence over that objective once you've set it as such. And this is something that not just leftists, not just socialists, not just people in the Democratic Party are responsible for. It's us as well. It's conservatives. It's professing conservatives. It's Republicans, certainly Republicans who have ascended to any sort of influence or power in this state and nationwide. I start off with that rant tonight in order to introduce our guest who is on the line, Cody Leibolt from ChristianIntellectual.com. We're going to consider a piece here from Spectator written by Daniel McCarthy called Why Libertarians Are Wrong. Here on Closing Argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. It's great having you with us. You can join the conversation. I invite you to do so. 651-989-5855. Brand taking those calls and producing the show. Brad still out for at least another week and a half uh, attending to his duties overseas. Appreciate him doing so. Let's bring Cody on the line. Thanks for joining us this evening. Great to be here, Walter. So you, at my behest, you took a look at this piece at spectator.us, Why Libertarians Are Wrong, written by Daniel McCarthy. And, you know, I was perusing it once again before coming on the air tonight. And, you know, I wanted to to read from it, to quote from it. But honestly, I can't. Like, it's just, to to my mind, it's just not 
a cogent enough piece of writing to to actually draw some sort of quote from the the thesis statement if i could distill it and i'm interested in in hearing if you have further insight in this i'm sure you do the thesis statement seems to be libertarianism or the libertarian idea or the the concept of liberty is doesn't work in the real world. It's not utilitarian. It's not going to solve the real world problems that we see before us. Problems such as an ascendant China on the international stage. Problems such as ascendant Islam in the international community. Uh, problems such as the the economic deterioration of the middle class and the the needs of a modern industrialized society and the the uh, esoteric developments of 21st century life in the first world libertarianism the idea that we all ought to be free to act upon our own judgment in pursuit of our own values is simply inadequate to address modern challenges what's your take on all of this cody libel yeah that is what he's doing and there is a kind of writer who they make their arguments completely unclear but they make their conclusion clear and this is one of those writers and his conclusion is actually Right under the title, it says they don't appreciate that the political crisis could come sooner than the economic one. This entire piece is threatening some kind of political crisis. And if I could formulate the argument in a way that I think actually does justice to his logic, it is this. China is becoming more rich and producing more. Therefore, we can't afford to have freedom in this country. (laughs) I mean, I laugh, but you're not wrong. That is the argument. And, yeah, and he doesn't, he doesn't show why that would be the case. Right. He, he's a fear monger, and, you know, he says that our country can't survive the global transformation that's coming. He's worried that we're outsourcing our manufacturing and replacing it with other industries, and therefore, what's his solution? It's always the same. The government needs to step in. Right, and to what effect? Like, what's the answer? Other, other than just asserting control, and, and, and not only what's the answer, but what's the premise upon which your perception of the problem rests? Like, okay, so let's say China is ascendant in one form or another. How does that inherently present a threat to you and I? Like, should we, let me ask you this, Cody Leibel. Should we be concerned about China? Should we be concerned about Islam? And if so, why? Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons to be concerned about what other nations are doing. After all, other nations have armies and weapons. Right. Uh, the, the issue, though, is how can we be the best nation, the most secure and strong and flourishing nation? And does he believe that you can accomplish that by following the route of the totalitarian dictatorships that put their own economies into shambles time after time? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's actually what he's arguing. But, you know, we've seen throughout world history, that the freer nations are not the ones that start wars. The freer nations are the ones that clean up and win because they actually had an economy. And somehow he thinks that we're not going to have the economy to be a flourishing, strong, good country uh, unless he gets to to set the terms. Yeah, it's, it's... It, it's it's an expression of, and this is genuinely true. And I don't know, you know, what his his political background is. I didn't research the guy, but it is certainly indicative of the left and indicative of central planners and social engineers that there's this this idea that there's this blind spot that they have in terms of recognizing from where prosperity comes, from where the capacity to produce abundance, produce 
the values that are necessary for the perpetuation and thriving of human life come from. And, you know, when, when you fail to recognize that, when you think that it's, it, it's the result of really intelligent, smartly planned central policy from some great authority, then your, your prescribed solution is to out plan, out think, out strategize the, the foreign actor in order to remain on top of the international heap, wherein the, the, the truth of the matter is that it's the opposite methodology. The opposite approach is actually how you overcome that international tyranny. It's actually by letting go of your populace, by letting people act on their own judgment in pursuit of their own values, that you unleash the potential of human achievement and create a society that it, that so values its own freedom that it will rise up to fight against any tyranny that threatens it. So this this writer is obviously advocating for socialistic policies. I mean, I I read some other articles from him. He has an article called "A New Conservative Agenda," and the conservatives have been doing that this last couple of months. You get a similar article from David Brooks, the supposed conservative at the New York Times, "An Agenda for Moderates." We're right. trying to figure out how in this new political landscape can we position ourselves, the supposed intellectual, supposed conservatives, as having something that we can put out as a vision for people. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they always amount to more government programs. I think what's happened is that the radical left has moved so far left that these supposedly conservatives are able to just camp right about where the Democratic Party has been the last 20 years. Yeah. And they're able to call that conservatism. Right. And they're, they're arguing basically that Trump is right about some things. He's right about we should be pretty xenophobic. He's right that we, we should only let in immigrants that have shown themselves to be like, you know, have master's degrees. Mm-hmm. The, the kinds of arguments, you know, we, it's, I mean, absurd arguments to the point where he even says we should not let in uh, low skilled labor from other countries because uh, that will discourage people that live in the United States right now from having more kids. <laughs> I can't, I couldn't believe I was reading this. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely astounding. The style of argument that you end up uh, finding more and more people who identify as conservative signing onto. And you're absolutely right. It is a, a Democrat light, a socialist light version of the same old arguments that we were hearing 20 years ago as as you know coming from the likes of bill clinton and now this is the mainstream of the republican party before i let you go tonight uh cody leibolt from christianintellectual.com you guys have a new book out it's called christian answers against social justice it was written by your colleague jacob brunton and uh, i skimmed the first chapter of it this uh afternoon and it's it's so far so good. Um, the the uh, first chapter, how Mark, Marxist thinking is seeping into the church. Quickly, how is Marxist thinking seeping into the church, and why is this something that Christians and conservatives should be concerned about? Well, within the supposed Christian, supposed intellectuals, supposed conservatives, you're finding people like Tim Keller, Joe Carter, Andrew Strain, David Brooks, Rod Dreher, Russell Moore. And they are making all of these arguments under the name of conservatism, and it's not conservatism. They're arguing for social justice. They're arguing that the term social justice is good and that it, it means that it's actually unjust if we don't redistribute wealth. So Jacob's book, in 64 pages, he's a clear, logical writer. This is not just angry polemics. It's arguments that demolish the Christian argument 
to socialism by saying, no, 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 this is actually unchristian. Here's why. Yeah, and it, it couldn't come at a better time, and it's it's highly recommended by yours truly. Where can people uh, get their copy of Christian Answers Against Social Justice? It's an ebook, sixty four pages, and it's actually free right now. So this week, you go to christianintellectual.com slash justice, and you can get it for free. There's no price better, and uh, very much appreciate you joining us. As always, we will t- uh, touch base with you guys next Wednesday as we have made a habit of doing. Appreciate you coming on the program, Cody. Thanks, Walter. All right, we've got a lot of news and developments to cover, of course. The big news of the day, the congressional testimony of Michael Cohen, personal lawyer, former personal lawyer to Donald Trump. Is this a... <laughs> Is this a watershed moment? You know, I betray my opinion with the laughter. Is this something that's going to bring down the Trump presidency? No. Nope. In fact, it may have actually bolstered it. I'll explain that when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Democrats are trying to break on through to impeachment of Donald Trump, and it doesn't seem as though it's going to work out too well for them. You know, the highly anticipated bombshell testimony from Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal lawyer, took place today on Capitol Hill, and the the seeming outcome of it is a giant, giant nothing burger. Now, you know, let me let's let's not overlook the rhetorical usefulness of the things that Michael Cohen had to say. He called the president a racist. He called the president a liar. He said the president was was morally reprehensible in a number of ways. But, of course, these are the same accusations that have been hurled at Trump from the moment he descended the escalator to announce that he was running to be president of the United States. So there's nothing new here in terms of those particular accusations, plus the fact that none of it is actually criminal, which is what is apropos to a congressional investigation. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. My name is Walter Hudson. So as you know, I'm not a huge fan of the president. I do support him. I have put on the MAGA hat. I intend to vote for him in 2020. I intend to encourage other people to vote for him in 2020. But I've been highly critical of Trump from the moment he descended that escalator, and I continue to be critical of him in a variety of ways. You know, I, I'm not I'm not Sean Hannity. All right, I think that much is clear. I'm not going to jump out and defend him no matter what he says, no matter what he does. In spite of that, I have to. I have to take a stand in his corner when it comes to this testimony offered by his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. Uh, And another person who fits that bill, by the way, a critic of the president who is also looking askew, uh, giving side eye to this testimony from Michael Cohen is Matt Walsh. He writes at the Daily Wire, 
Because attorney-client privilege is apparently no longer a thing, Michael Cohen, President Trump's former lawyer, is on Capitol Hill this week testifying against his old employer. And, you know, just before we go any further, isn't that an incredibly relevant point? Like, the, the fact that Michael Cohen is on Capitol Hill testifying against his former client stands onto itself as evidence against his own credibility and character. Not to mention the fact that this is a guy who has pleaded guilty to lying to Congress before and has demonstrated a pattern of behavior that indicates that he will say or do anything to protect himself. In fact, you know, in the in the little bit of his opening remarks that uh, I, I considered live today, he made it very clear that he's all about protecting his own interests, which, of course, is understandable, but it doesn't really go toward it, it doesn't really lend credence to his account that he then offers of how terrible Donald Trump is. When you start off eliminating your own credibility and demonstrating that you're somebody who's going to go wherever the wind blows, and and that's basically the argument he offered today. He said, you know, Donald Trump was was really, you know, he never told me to lie, but, you know, he gave me some looks. He gave me some side eye. He winked at me. He gives me some body language, and I was so intimidated that I just had to lie to Congress, and I'm so ashamed. Well, if that if that's how weak-willed you are, then I ima- imagine how in, in a context where you're in a you're in a private scenario, like let's just say that Michael Cohen's telling the truth on that front. He's in a private scenario with his client, the President of the United States, who's in nonverbal fashion cluing him into the notion that he ought to lie to Congress. If he's susceptible to that type of manipulation, Imagine how susceptible he is to federal prosecutors. Imagine how susceptible he is to the special counsel. Imagine how quickly he folded under the least suggestion that he was going to have to face any kind of consequence whatsoever unless he cooperated with the forces that have been arrayed against Donald Trump, which we now know from the testimony of Andrew McCabe and the the, uh, revelations that have come out of the deep state were well-organized and arrayed against the president from the from before he took office, from before his inauguration, with the intent of getting him out. Not just opposing his agenda, but removing him as president of the United States. So the entire context here is one where nothing that happens within it can be taken seriously. And yeah, and we have that that's just that's just from the first sentence of Matt Walsh's report here. He continues. The media tells us that his testimony, Cohen's, is like a carpet bomb on the Trump administration full of explosive and damning revelations that will surely spell doom for the president. Something closer to the opposite is the case. In Cohen's prepared remarks, he makes a series of allegations that have nothing at all to do with criminal conduct. For instance, he labels Trump a racist and accuses him of calling black people stupid. He also paints Trump as manipulative and conceited, claiming that Trump once organized the purchase of his own portrait so that it would be the highest-priced item at the auction. That particular anecdote strikes me as entirely believable, but it has no relevance to anything and has no place in a congressional hearing. Cohen makes the president seem silly, self-involved, dishonest, and perhaps morally repugnant, but even if all of that is true, it doesn't make him a criminal. And besides, Cohen is an open and admitted liar who is going to jail for his deceptions. He is clearly willing to invent or embellish stories if he thinks it will benefit him by the ruse. 
There is no way that any thinking person could take his word as gospel. To be fair, the Democratic operative who wrote Cohen's statement, uh, it did include a few more serious charges, but even those bits hardly make an impact upon closer inspection. In one of his headlining claims, Cohen says that Trump knew about the WikiLeaks dump of DNC emails ahead of time. Cohen does not allege that Trump orchestrated the hacking of the DNC. He does not indicate that Trump had any hand in the acquisition or publication of the material. He says only that Trump heard a rumor about it a few days ahead of time. We are supposed to be morally shocked that Trump, the great villain, was pleased by the news. But why wouldn't he be pleased? Isn't any politician pleased to find out that their opponent is about to suffer public embarrassment? Was Trump supposed to get on the horn with the Clinton camp and help them develop a strategy for dealing with the PR crisis? I suppose that would have been sportsmanlike, but sportsmen don't win elected office in modern America. This again from Matt Walsh writing at the Daily Wire, and uh, he goes on in similar fashion. This is nothing. And, you know, uh, let me share with you before we go to our, our bottom of the hour break, his conclusion, because I think that this this really puts the the nail in the coffin of this effort to try to smear the president or prove the president is responsible for some sort of criminal misconduct, you know, high crime and misdemeanor that warrants an impeachment proceeding. Reflect on this for a moment. Walsh writes, the Democrats have their worst enemies lawyer in their pocket. The guy who has spent a decade putting fires out for Trump, the guy who knows where the bodies are buried. Whatever dirt there might be, whatever skeletons lay hidden in the closet, this is the one man who will know about it. And this hearing, which exonerates Trump more than it implicates him, is the best they can do with that secret weapon. That is quite incredible when you think about it. Incredibly favorable to Trump, that is. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Thirty and 103.5 FM. Setting here in the Twin Cities News Talk studios, we've got Fox News on the monitor as usual, and I'm sitting here watching live images of President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un at their summit in Hanoi, Vietnam. And I got to tell you, the first thing that went through my head as I'm watching these images had nothing whatsoever to do with the intricacies of foreign policy or the political implications for 2020 or any sort of marveling at the fact that this is a, a meeting that's taken place after so many failed attempts to engage in diplomacy with North Korea. The first thing that went through my head is, man, that swimming pool looks awesome. That swimming pool looks amazing. I hate the snow. I hate winter. Why do I live in Minnesota? Yeah. <laughs> The Groundhog's prediction, this is from the Star Tribune, the Groundhog's prediction of an early spring this year was wrong, (laughs) way wrong. Another round of snow Friday will usher in an Arctic blast that will get March off to one of the coldest starts ever in the Twin Cities. By Sunday and Monday, high temperatures will struggle to crack the zero mark, and the mercury will sink to lows rarely seen during the first week of March. Temperatures of 10 below or lower during the first seven days of the month have occurred only four times in the metro area in nearly 50 years. And state climatologist Luigi Romarlo, uh, according to him, 
but it can get brutally cold as it did on March 1st, 1962, when the Metro saw its coldest March reading ever at 32 below. So, you know, it's cold, I guess is my point. And there's a lot of snow and I'm sick of shoveling it and I'm just done. I'm just done. I want to go to Hanoi. There's probably, I recognize there's probably a nice warm swimming pool somewhere closer than Hanoi, Vietnam, but that's the one I just saw. So I am uh, envious of our president, not because he's in it, but because he's standing next to it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can contribute to the show. Have your voice heard, 651-989-5855. Brianne taking those calls and producing the program. We were talking last segment about Michael Cohen's testimony before Congress against his former client, the president, Donald Trump. Let's talk to Pat in Shoreview. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Say I was I was watched some of the testimony, and one of the little side notes or whatever it was is that um, they asked Michael Cohen about you know him recording his clients and he said, oh, yeah, I've recorded. I've had over 100 recordings of my clients. And then uh, someone said, well, you turn that over to the committee. And the guy says, yes. Michael Cohen says, yes, I'll turn it over to the committee. So he's willing to waive privilege or, you know, on um, like 100, I don't know how many clients he had. But yeah. he, they asked him, well, how many clients, you know, did you waive privilege for here when you said you're going to turn over those recordings? And he, he wouldn't answer the question. Right. So, I mean, it was more than Donald Trump. And so, I mean... I just, the thing that I came up with, one of the things that came up with, is like he's a complete sleazeball. He'll say what he has to say yep. to get what he wants to get. Yep. And he's been doing that all his life. Yep. I don't know, you know, um, you know, and I don't have a, I don't have a lot of, you know, I don't think that Donald Trump's a man of, well, I a real integrity. I mean, mm-hmm. but he happens to be the, uh, the ship I'm just, you know, tied myself to. Right. I don't, you know, as far as, um, <laughs> as far as like, he seems to be, you know, as far as policy position, policy positions go, I tend to agree with him. Sure. I mean, sure. coming to 2020, given what's happening with the democratic party, it's an absolute no brainer. Right. who I'm going to yeah, vote. Right. For. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is. And so, you know, that's, that's, and I don't know to what extent he's responsible for the democratic party going insane, but they have. Yeah, um, I think it's a correlation. I don't think it's. I don't think it's because of him. I think it's just the, the, everything is correlating. I appreciate the contributions, Pat. Yeah, I'll tell you the the one damning revelation that has come out of Michael Cohen's testimony, as Pat highlights by indicating just how sleazy and irresponsible and reprehensible Michael Cohen is in terms of betraying his clients and having no sort of it personal or professional integrity whatsoever. The one damning revelation for Donald Trump is that Donald Trump hired Michael Cohen. Like, that's the one thing you could say about Donald Trump as a result of this testimony is, what were you thinking, dude? Like, you hired this guy, and this was your guy, your your personal attorney for however many years. This was the best you could do. And in a similar sense, if you want to fo- continue to follow this logic, to Pat's point, of, hey, I'm hitched to this wagon of Trump, and and there are issues that I have with Trump on a variety of of levels. The fact that that all of us listening to this program, for the most part, are going to vote for Donald Trump in spite of that against the Democrats tells you where the Democrats are at. So this is just one big toilet bowl of awesome is basically what it is. It's it's like, you know, see, it's, it's comparing 
how terrible people are versus the or relative to the other terrible people next to them. And it's, it's a hierarchy of terrible, which is a, a horrible place to be. Speaking of uh, hierarchies of terrible, let's consider what's happening in North Carolina in their public education system. This is truly astounding, and it takes a lot to astound me nowadays. But this definitely qualifies from, uh, I'm trying to get the, what's the name of the outlet out here? It's the WPLG. It's one of the local television stations down there in Raleigh, North Carolina. School employees in one state might be feeling happier these days after learning the bar for failing could be lowered and by a lot. The North Carolina legislature is considering a change in the grading system for the state's public schools. The bill in question would be based on a 15-point scale rather than a 10-point scale for grades. That would mean only scores lower than 39% would qualify for an F. As a far cry from the current 60% failure mark in the state and most others. Student grades would be unaffected by the changing scale system, but would allow underperforming schools to continue operating. Now, before we came on the air tonight, Joe Pags was talking about this, and he had a guy call in who was who was defending this, and I was just mesmerized by that call because the guy was saying, "Well, what you need to understand is they're trying to they're trying to distribute the the points equally amongst the different grade levels." Yeah, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but I'm thinking to myself, "I'm like, dude, no, they're not. Like, don't lie. Like, I, I." I re- for your sake, because I respect you, I'm going to assume that you're not as stupid as you're pretending to be right now. What this is all about, and it's in this last line, this last sentence, this last paragraph of the article here, underperforming schools continue to operate. That's it. That's what it's about. It's about changing the image changing the perception of how schools are doing changing the perception of how students are doing it's and it's indicative of a general lowering of the standard that's been taking place across our culture right i mean how many times over this air and on other programs over this air have you heard stories to the effect of you know we're lowering the standards for firefighters we're lowering the standards for police officers we're lowering standards for entering the military we're lowering standards for entering college we're lowering standards for for graduating high school we're lowering standards for everything across the board there are no standards forget standards standards are racist standards are oppressive standards are part of the patriarchy standards are part of the reason why society needs to change why we need to have revolution standards are evil no standards are a measure by which we determine whether or not we have the capacity to negotiate reality and look this is this is the <laughs> i it it's extraordinarily frustrating to me that I continue to have to make this point again and again, night after night, week after week. You have one job as a parent, one. That job is to raise your child to the point where they are capable of negotiating reality. That's your entire job. That's the whole thing. To, to, to bring them from the point where they're at when you first get them, which is completely incapable completely unperceptive, completely uninsightful, completely unintelligent, and to correct all of that to develop them along the way over the course of 18 years to the point where they are capable of conceiving of and pursuing rational values to their own benefit. 
That's the job of a parent. And we delegate that to our educators. Now, whether we send our kids to a public school or whether we're, we're able to send our kids to a private school or we homeschool or whatever methodology we use, that is the objective. We are entrusting these people to take on that responsibility for us to the degree that we entrust them with our kids and say, now it's in your hands. I'm hiring you, whether it's through my tax dollars or through my dis- disposable income, to take my child and to bring them up in knowledge and understanding and capacity so that one day they'll be capable of handling reality, of handling life, of conceiving of and pursuing values. So how does lowering the standard, how does lowering an F from 60%, which think about this, you know, my kid, I help my kid do homework from time to time. 60% You know, simple math problem. What is 60%? Six out of 10. Getting six out of 10 math problems, for instance, correct on a piece of homework or on a test. Six out of 10. That's the minimum standard, right? Six out of 10. We're going to lower that to four. How does that help him? How does that help my kid to say, you know what, it's cool if... If six times out of 10, you get the answer wrong on math, how is that going to prepare him to be able to live his life productively and achieve the values he needs in order to survive and thrive? It's not. It's the opposite. And, you know, it kind of goes to a a recurring theme that we run into whenever we consider the narrative of the left versus the actual manifestation of their policies, which is they claim to do these things because they care. They claim to do these things because they want to affect equity. They want to make everybody's lives better. They want to ensure they want to close gaps. They want to ensure that everybody has access, that everybody's happy, that everybody's equal. But the reality is quite the opposite. The reality is if you loved somebody, I I love my son, so I demand better than 60%. I love my son, so I demand better than 40%. I love my son, so I I push him towards excellence. Because I love him, not in spite of the fact, because love demands better, not worse. These people hate our children. That's not an exaggeration. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Back to Walter. tell you i don't even understand the psychology behind wanting to lower standards you know we we're talking about this story out of north carolina where the state legislature is considering changing the grading system in their public schools so that in f you know they're going to expand it out instead of it being 10 points per grade it's going to be 15 which is going to translate to an f going from a 60 percent or less to 39 like a full 20 percent difference so now, you know, the standard is, well, you know, you're still you're still going to get a D as long as you get five out of 10 answers right, you know, which is basically like just throwing darts at the board. You, know, you remember that? Because we all I, I, I know I did this and I'm sure everybody else did at some point, especially once you when you're doing a multiple choice test and you had it was a time test and you had like five minutes left and like 20 questions to answer. You get to that point and then you just start filling in random bubbles. A, C, D, C. Yeah, right, because you're, you're playing the odds, and you're like, all right, all right, here we go. It's gambling now, right? You you might as well just do that with the whole test. 
right? I mean, if it's if it's a D for fifty percent, you odds are you're going to be just fine. Why do you even need to have standards? I don't understand the psychology behind this. I don't understand what kind of a person doesn't want some kind of a standard and and to have the capacity, have the opportunity to feel a sense of achievement for meeting or exceeding that standard. Is this really where we're at in our culture now? Where we we have no aspiration. We have no desire to to look to the horizon, to climb the mountain, to reach the summit, to to achieve something that either hasn't been achieved before or that we personally have not achieved to set new limits. It wasn't, it, this is something that, it, you know, as I grew up and, and as, as evidence throughout the popular culture has always been something that's been part of the human experience, striving towards something better. It's, it's supposedly the reason why we have things like space exploration. It's why we shot a man to the moon, right? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What does that even mean? Why should we even care? Why go to the moon when we can go to Cincinnati? Much easier. It's right there. It doesn't take half, it doesn't take a fraction of the energy or the effort. So why? Why set a higher standard? These are questions that need to be asked of the left because they seem intent upon continually lowering the standards for everything. And it's it is anti-life. That's kind of the theme that's been emerging here, certainly this week, as we've discussed things like abortion and the different policies that are being pursued. They are anti-human life. Let's talk to Dom from Maple Grove. Welcome to the program. Yeah, Walter, thanks for taking my call. You know, I, I've been a teacher for 35 years, and I, I immigrated to this country from India. And I see a lot of international students in my school, and almost in every case, uh, even though they can't speak the language as well as we do, you know, their, their math skills and other skills are, you know, out of the spark. The problem is, it, 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 you know, it was the higher education, you know, college education in this country, is, nobody can compete with that, one of the best. Uh, and, and the issue here is that everybody is looking to, for a participation trophy to give away because the teacher right. is pushed to a corner because if he or she does not have some kind of a graduation rate, and then, I mean, right. the students would, you know, pile up on them, right. which is why you're producing beautiful, you know, specimens like Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, <laughs> and Michael Cohen. Yeah, right. These are <laughs> and, and they're occupying the highest office of the land, making decisions for the rest of us. That's what scares the heck yeah. out of me. Yep. And that's the problem. Thank you, Dom. I very much appreciate yeah. your input. And, and listen, consider the environment where such a thing is possible. Consider the environment where, where a teacher says, gee, I need to I need to to be able to achieve a certain standard in order to keep my job and the most effective way for me to do that is not to actually meet it not to actually produce a student who's capable but to skew the grading curve so that it appears as though I'm doing a better job than I actually am that can only happen under a condition of government that can only happen under a condition of public education. If a parent was paying out of their pocket for somebody to educate their child, they would never tolerate that type of negligence, and in fact, they would sue. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Yeah, this is one of those 
topics that my mind has just gotten snagged on and I'm not able to easily move past this notion that, you know, North Carolina is considering in their state legislature the idea of changing the grading system such that a, a A will no longer be an A as you and I understand it. A B will no longer be a B as you and I understand it. An F will go from being 60% or less to 39% or less. We're lowering the standard. We're adjusting the curve so that it appears as though students are doing better than they actually are. Now, this stands as evidence, I submit, that teachers... And you know, are, are you ready for this? Buckle your seatbelts. All right. Buckle your seatbelts. Teachers don't really care about their students. I stand by that. Teachers don't really care about their students. Now let me expound upon this. Because, you know, it it it's it's an idea that deserves exploration. Let me tell you what I mean. Clearly, clearly, obviously, if your preference is to change the measuring stick, to change the measuring methodology so that a lack of achievement appears to be achievement, that a lack of meeting a standard appears to meet a standard, you're not actually interested in the well-being of the student. I mean, isn't that obvious, right? I mean, it, it, how could shouldn't the first shouldn't the number one person, the number one constituency who's opposed to this change in how students' achievement is measured be teachers? Shouldn't be the they be the first ones right behind the parents, like 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 jockeying for position alongside the parents? Shouldn't they be right there saying no? This will not stand. We will not abide it. It is not okay because we care about our students. We care about our profession. We have professional integrity. We want our students to achieve, and we are not going to fake it. Our pride and our love for these children will not allow us to stand by and let this happen. Shouldn't that be what's taking place in the wake of this proposal? But it's not. But it's not. In fact, I'd be willing to bet you, haven't verified it, but I'd be willing to bet you, teachers are behind it. Public teachers unions are behind this effort to change the standard and are probably entirely okay with it. And indeed, you know, how many times have we seen, you know, we're going to, we're going to go on strike, right? In order to up our benefits, up our pay, up our compensation, increase funding for our institutions. Now who, who benefits from that and who is hurt through that process? Is it, is it in the interest of the students or is it in the interest of the adults who are part of the education system? And here's the dirty little secret, because, you know, it's not as though this, this is the thing that drives me nuts about the left is that they pretend as though there is a different kind of human being who operates in the public sector as opposed to the kind of human being who operates in the private sector, that, that it's like two different species of people. That we can trust government, we can trust the public education system, we can trust anything that is funded through government dollars, because through some sort of alchemy that has never even been attempted to be explained, 
people are endowed with moral virtue because they're funded by public dollars. So a public school teacher is some sort of, of, of some sort of moral angel because their paycheck is signed by the state. Now, you have to explain to me how this works because I, it's not self-evident. I, I hate to break it to you. It's not self-evident at all. In fact, there's a whole lot of evidence that counters the entire notion. And of course, the truth is there is no qualitative difference. There is no substantial species-like separation between people who work in the public sector and people who work in the private sector. Both are motivated by precisely the same things. Number one, above all, self-interest. Self-interest. And this is the difference, broadly speaking, one of the many, many differences between the right and the left. The right acknowledges the existence of self-interest and to varying degrees upholds self-interest as a legitimate concern. You properly ought to be concerned with yourself. You properly ought to be concerned with providing for your own well-being and pursuing your own values. Whereas the left pretends as though there's some superior consideration to self-interest, which of course there's not at all, ever. Under any circumstances. And so they try, they pretend as though you can somehow subjugate self-interest to something else. And of course you can't. And so when you get into a public education, education scenario or any sort of government funding or government intervention scenario, the actors, the people who are actually hired to do whatever job are still motivated by self-interest. They just don't have the same checks and balances, the same context provided by the market to, to sort of rein that self-interest in and direct it in a productive direction. A teacher at a private school, and if we had a private education system, if we abolished public education tomorrow, and we had a comprehensive private education system where the only means by which you could educate your child is by paying somebody to do it, People would still, teachers would still be self-interested. Teachers wouldn't suddenly, mat through some sort of market alchemy, become more loving of their students than they are on, in public education. But they would be pursuing their self-interest in a different context. They would be pursuing their self-interest in a context where the only way they could take care of themselves, the only way they could increase their compensation, the only way they could increase their benefits, the only way they could increase their stature and their brand and their reputation is by actually producing a product that people want to buy. And as it turns out, parents have self-interest too. And their self-interest is, I want the best for my child. I want my child to be able to confront reality successfully into adulthood and beyond. To be able to be parents on their own someday. To be able to pursue their careers. To be able to live good lives. And because parents have that self-interest, and because they're the ones who are paying the bills, paying for somebody to teach their child, they will ensure, through market forces, that a self-interested teacher does the best job. Public education removes that incentive. Public education provides the guarantee that no matter what, you're going to get paid. 
whether whether the kids who come, who get crapped out of the the butt end of your system are able to do math or not, whether they're able to read or not, whether they're able to pull down a job or not, whether they're able to accomplish literally anything or not, doesn't matter. You're going to get paid because it's a matter of legislation. It's a matter of law. It's a matter of contract with the state and the taxpayers going to pay at the point of a gun. So why then should you care? any more about your students than you inherently do. That's where we find ourselves. And, you know, when you understand it, when you, when you really take the time to understand it in those terms, isn't it clear that public education is inherently evil? It's inherently evil to have a system, to have an institution that removes the incentive to actually have students do a good job. To actually have students achieve something of meaning. To actually have students learn the skills and acquire the knowledge necessary in order to live productive lives. If that's not what's happening in your system, then your system is evil. So why is it so hard to oppose it? Why is this a difficult conversation? Why are we losing to these people? How is it? Think about this. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow's Thursday. Okay, it's the middle of the week. It's amazing that I'm this passionate on a Wednesday. Tomorrow is Thursday morning. Tomorrow morning, children across the state, including my own, including my own dear son, are going to wake up and their parents are going to wake up alongside them. And we are collectively, voluntarily going to send our children to these factories of nonsense that do nothing for them, that don't teach them how to read, don't teach them how to do math, don't teach them how to think, don't teach them how to solve problems, don't provide them with any sort of skills whatsoever that are relevant to the world in which they live. And we're going to do so, and we're going we're gonna to feel good about it. We're going to act as though we're, we're, we are engaged in some sort of virtuous process, supporting some sort of virtuous institution. By participating in this nonsense, I, I take you back to where we started the show tonight. We are the problem. You and me. We need to look in the mirror. We, you, know, you know how the standard is able to get lowered in North Carolina? Because we first lowered it in our own home. Because we first lowered it in our own church. Because we first lowered it in our own family, in our own nation. Because we decided that we were going to accept Republicans who don't do what they say they're going to do. Because we decided that we're going to accept schools that don't say what they were construed, what they were formulated in order to accomplish. Because we decided that we were going to adopt the moral premises of the left and say, yeah, you know, we're right. We really do exist as fuel for other human beings. Yeah, you know, you're right. We really shouldn't allow one person to achieve more than another because it makes the person who didn't achieve feel bad. Yeah, I know. We should, we should really strive to all be equal and all be equitable and have, every, and have everybody get participation trophies. Yeah, you're right. Gee, you know, if only we could be a little bit more efficient about how quickly we creep towards the cliff of socialism. We are the reason for this problem. And until we change, until we develop the conviction that we are not going to take it anymore, nothing is going to change. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. To Walter.
Riders on the storm. I think I might need to start choosing between caffeine and sugar. Both seem to have a uh, negative impact upon my ability to keep things together. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about the news out of North Carolina that the state legislature there is looking at changing the standard for academic performance, changing their grading system such that an F will no longer be 60% or less, it'll be 39% or less. They're going to spread the grades out instead of it being 10 percentage points per grade, 15 is the new standard, all in order to make failing schools look like they're not. Let's talk to Tom and Egan. Thanks for holding as long as you have. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, You said earlier look in the mirror, and I think that's the biggest issue, is that parents have to be responsible for, like, being an advocate for their kids' education. Mm -hmm. They have to read to the kid when they're babies. They have to be with them, really, and help them through elementary school, at least. At that point, middle school, they're on their own, sort of. But parents are giving up their jobs, really, to teachers. And teachers can't do it themselves. They need help from the parents. And what are we missing there? I mean, that's really what the issue is, I think. Look, Tom, I don't disagree with you. I appreciate that you contributing to the program. I don't disagree with you. And under any circumstances, that would be true, right? Like, And this is, I I think of the the pastoral relationship as well, because this is a a concept that that comes up uh, in church every so often as well, and as well it should. That if you if you leave the theological instruction, the religious upbringing to Sunday morning, if that's the only time that you ever reference the Bible or talk about Jesus to your kid, then you can't expect them to 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 take it to heart or to feel as though it's important because they, they don't see you valuing it. They don't see you modeling it. And in a similar sense, the idea that, you know, and you know, kids spend a lot more time in school than they do at church. But the idea that, you know, we're never we don't have to play any role whatsoever in our own child's education is a is a very dangerous concept. But I, I think we need to be cognizant of a distinction, however, because, yes, it's always true that parents are going to need to take responsibility for the education of their children. However, the beauty of the market is this thing called the division of labor. You know, I I play a role in the maintenance of my car, but I need a mechanic in order to do the heavy lifting, right? And when I when I find a mechanic that I trust and I pay him to do a job, I expect the job to get done. And if he's failing to do the job, then I'm going to take my money somewhere else to somebody who's going to do it better, who's going to actually deliver for me. And that dynamic, dynamic that market interaction incentivizes mechanics as a class of people, as a profession, to provide quality service lest they lose their business. That same dynamic does not exist in the public education system. And so as a result, while it's true that we need to continue to play a role in the education of our children, it's it's worse than parents being disengaged. It's it's parents trusting their t- the teachers and the school district and the school system to provide a product that is not being provided. It isn't. 
And to the extent that it is, the the incentive is not to do better. The incentive is not to push harder. The incentive is to beguile you. It's to fool you. That's the purpose of this legislation that they're putting forward in North Carolina. To pull the wool over your eyes and to deceive you as to the quality of education that your child is receiving. And, you know, do you play a role in, in a kind of willful ignorance in accepting that? Of course. Yes, that's true. But the, it's <laughs> and, and while you need to take responsibility for that, we need to recognize the reason for it, right? Like there's there is a obscuring effect that the intervention of government has, and this is always the case. And you know, we talk about this frequently on the program when it comes to the the mechanism of price. That price is a signal that the market provides that tells you the economic value of a good or service. And to the extent that government intervenes with you know, minimum wage, price controls, tariffs, whatever, to the extent that government interferes, it obscures the information that is being communicated in price, which has the which has only one effect. There's only one effect that it has. It disables your capacity to make good decisions. It makes it more difficult for you to respond appropriately to changes in market conditions. As a consumer, you don't know whether you should consume more or consume less. As a producer, you don't know whether you should produce more or produce less. At the first extreme of intervention, you get Venezuela, where they're starving in the street. Are they starving in the street because they don't know how to produce food? No. They're starving in the street because they, they are barred from their their eyes have been covered, their ears have been plugged. They don't have the mechanism of price to tell them, to signal to them what they ought to do. And in a similar sense, when it comes to our education system, because there's this intervention in the market for education known as the public education system, the the signals that should be cluing us in as parents to the lack of quality in the education that our children are receiving are obscured. So we don't even notice them. We don't even realize what's happening. And, you know, we, we should. We should be intelligent enough to realize it in spite. But we have to recognize that, that it's also something, it's, as much as it's something that we are allowing to be done to ourselves, it is also something that is being done to us. And we can't let the uh, the, the folks who are responsible for doing it to us off the hook any more than we let ourselves off the hook. Let's talk to Stan from Wyoming. Wow, appreciate that. Welcome to the program. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, well, you kind of took some of it. Uh, obviously, parents are the most important factor in any education. And, you know, what North Carolina wants to do or South Carolina, it doesn't it, it at least is relegated to the state. I, I think people need to get involved with their schools and their kids' education much more than they do. Otherwise, they would not have this problem in the first place. And and so, you know, people want to watch TV instead of getting involved with their community and stuff. That's what they get. People get the government they deserve. And, you know, I was involved. My wife was definitely involved with our kids' education, and they came out very well and uh, exceedingly well in one case. And so the the... The, the people, the, the people are going to rise to whatever level they want. Most people don't need to go to, you know, high school even to get a decent education. And they can go to a library for that matter. The internet can teach them a heck of a lot more than they'll ever learn in a classroom in most part. So most of the stuff they get is a waste of time. In, in my case, it was. I, 
there was a lot of wasted time yeah. in high school and in college. Yeah. And, you know, the, the amount that you could learn, that's why we have libraries, why Getty or I forget who it was built all the libraries. Carnegie, I think, right? Yeah. Appreciate the call, Stan. Appreciate the points. Uh, not without merit. Um, and yet, you know, I, I feel as though I, I need to hammer the point home that while it's true, while it's true that, you know, we've got states that this is state policy and, and parents need to be involved and you should get involved in, you know, what's going on with their school board and what's happening locally and all that. Fundamentally, the problem is not a lack of participation in the politics of how schools work. Fundamentally, the problem is that schools work the way that they do. It's the way the system is structured. Further participation in a flawed system is not going to make the system substantially, qualitatively better. It needs to be abolished. It needs to be reformed from the ground up and rebuilt in a market model that actually incentivizes quality. It's what produced the minds that gave us this country that's good enough for me. It's good enough for you. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 105-FM. Twin Cities News Talk. And 1035 FM. I remember standing on the corner at midnight. Another thing that we have to keep in mind when we consider education and the status quo of our education system is that it's not just what we think of as core academics that are being taught to varying degrees of success. What's also being transmitted and propagated is a worldview, a morality, ideas of right and wrong. And, you know, somewhere along the lines, we've lost track of this. It seems very clear. You know, somewhere in the past, before I was born, the decision was made that religion and religious education, vestiges of religion, prayer, any reference to the Bible, has no place in the public education system. And the, the argument there was, well, you know, separation of church and state, but also some variation on the notion that morality is something that should be left in the home. Morality is something that should be left in the church. It's not the purview of the school system to teach your children to be godly. Well, of course, <laughs> there's no way you can you can't te- you can't send your kid someplace to be instructed without there being some kind of transmission of morality, right? Without there being some kind of standard of what's right and what's wrong. And of course, when you exclude religion, when you exclude the Judeo-Christian perspective from that consideration, what's left? Well, whatever the state says ought to be moral. Whatever the state says ought to be right and wrong. And that's what they're being indoctrinated with. And indeed, I would submit that that is the primary mission of the public education system. I mean, clearly, right? Obviously, in a context where, you know, we've been talking about this legislation in North Carolina that's being considered, whereby they want to change the grading system such that an F is no longer 60%, it's only 39. And instead of having 10 percentage points per letter grade, it's going to be 15. 
and we're going to skew the system, skew the curve so that it looks like students who aren't performing as well as they should actually are doing okay. Isn't it obvious in that context that the number one priority is not academics? That the number one priority is not doing well in any sort of academic sense? And of course, it, it, it isn't, and it hasn't been for a very long time. The priority of the public education system from its inception has always been to produce pliant, manageable, world citizens. Widgets to get plugged into the machine. Workers to do their master's bidding. Citizens to, to color within the lines drawn by government, drawn by the state. That's its purpose. And it has served that purpose extraordinarily well. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at Radio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can contribute to the program at 651-989-5855. Brianne taking those calls and producing the program. We've got, who's been waiting the longest here? Bob from St. Paul. Welcome to the show. Good evening. I want to throw out that the uh, underlying education disaster is the fact that as conservatives, we accepted the fact you feel good as a result of your achievements. The liberal DFL-controlled school districts have flipped this on its head. Now their flawed ideology is we first have to make students feel good so they can and will achieve. So once you go down that road, everything is lost. Then you get to the point of what's called the Minnesota School Board Association, which is nothing but a lobbyist group for government schools and superintendents. Superintendents licenses, superintendents contracts. Look at St. Paul. The last superintendent, Valeria Silva, was paid $800,000 to leave the district because of her lack of leadership and the, the way she destroyed morale, teaching morale in the schools. This is a huge problem. This, this lowering of standards to, I mean, it's gotten so bad in St. Paul that they could pretty much graduate a doorknob. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they say, well, we've increased, we've increased graduation rate. How did right, they do it? Right, right, they right, right. lowered the standard. Right. I mean, they're, they're, and the school boards, all part of the DFL machine, all go along with this, yeah. and there, ever, there is never a limit to the amount of money. And then, they, Bob, and then, Bob, they, they, have, the, they have schools. Their annual budget is seven hundred and fifty million dollars right. for right. for thirty four thousand students. That's nineteen thousand dollars per student per year. What does the taxpayer get for that? Nothing. And I, I appreciate the call, Bob. And the, here's the here's the bottom line. 
if you if you say what Bob just said or any of the things that I've been saying so far tonight about the public education system or if you oppose them increasing funding for any aspect of the institution, what is it that they accuse you of? They accuse you of not caring about the children. Think about the audacity of that. Think about the evil of that. While standing in the midst of this this muck of inutility, this muck of non-productivity and non-achievement and you know a, la- a lack of progress, a lack of product, to have the audacity to look at us and say, you don't care about the kids, parent. You don't care about the kids, taxpayer. Why? How do I know you don't? Because you're not going to give me more money. Because you're not going to increase my salary. Because you're not going to increase my budget. So obviously you don't care about the kids. How about this for a standards of who cares about the kids? Let's see which of us actually t- value the educational outcomes. And I'm not talking about some arbitrary number that you come up with, such as the graduation rate, as Bob referenced. I'm talking about what kids are actually capable of achieving what they know, the values that they're instilled with, the quality of their character, their capacity to perpetuate the culture their capacity to engage with reality productively, to conceive of and pursue rational values, that's the product that I'm interested in evaluating. And and let's let's determine who cares about the kids based upon who's focused on that. Let's talk to Jesse in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, how are you doing, Walter? Good. Uh, the question I have for you is let's just say that you're in the military and you're in North Carolina. You're a recruiter. You have to send your kid wherever your kid's going to go. Yeah. And let's say in a couple years, hey, I'm moving. i got to come up to Minnesota. Now, the weighted of the grades, I mean, if they're saying that the credits aren't going to be uh, as weighted as other states, now my kid is now behind because, hey, they went through the first seven grades, and now they're actually not in seventh grade. They're in say fifth grade or whatever, um, because the, the credits weren't weighted mm-hmm. to transfer to another state. And I mean, and that would be a same thing with, hey, if I go over to Germany, their standards over in Germany are totally different than they are in the state. So now my kid's even more behind because he had to go through or she had to go through the North Carolina um, education system and didn't really have a choice of where the kid went because open enrollment doesn't exist. So that's another thing to, to point out there. I mean... Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the call, Jesse. It kind of falls in the same category as, you know, every other consequence of having a system that values the arbitrary measure above the objective product, right? You know, if, it, if your kid... It wouldn't matter how your kid scored, quote-unquote, if your kid was capable, right? Because, you know, I transferred states in the middle of uh, my childhood. And as I recall, and I'm sure it's still the case today, if there's that type of a discrepancy or that type of question, or if you go from, you know, one, if you, if you switch colleges in uh, post-secondary, they have assessments, right? Like if there's some question as to what you're capable of, they can give you an assessment to determine where you belong, where you should be placed, well, if you're capable of performing on the assessment, then it's not a problem. 
but therein lies the rub, right? Is that we're not teaching the kids how to actually be capable, which of course is the whole point, but not if you're on the left, not if you're a proponent of, of, of equity above outcome, equity above ability, equity above achievement, equity above potential, and indeed above human life. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk. Walter. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. It's been a fun one tonight, and I didn't intend to spend like an hour and a half talking about how much public education sucks, but yeah, it's a deep topic. (laughs) There's a lot of depth and breadth there to discussing the failures of the public education system. A topic very dear to my heart, trust me. And in particular, you know, the, the thing that I think, you know, the core of it, and hopefully you guys have caught on to this tonight if you've been listening for any length of time. The core of it is not a, a failure of process or a failure of methodology. It's it's a moral failure. And the moral failure is is built into, it's baked into the cake. It's built into the structure of the system. When you remove the incentive for the industry, and that's what it is, the education industry to produce the product it was conceived to produce or ought to be conceived to produce, which is educated children, educated students who grow into adults who are capable of negotiating reality and taking on the world. When you remove the incentive to do that, then you have removed the capacity for it to be accomplished. People, people, you know, it's kind of like water. Water goes, follows the path of least resistance. People are only ever going to do what they're incentivized to do. That's it. They're only ever going to do what they're incentivized to do. What is in their own self-interest as determined by the context in which they find themselves. And when they, li- when they, when they proceed in a context of liberty, their self-interest is only going to be achieved rationally by serving the interests of others, by being an asset to other people and trading value for value. The, the rich, a rich person, a billionaire in a condition of liberty got that way by producing value above and beyond the billions he has. It's the only way he possibly could have gotten it. You know how we know? Because people gave him that money. He didn't pull a gun and force them to give it to him. They chose to give it to him. But that incentive is only there if the gun is not an option, if force is not in play. And that's the moral failing of the public education system is that the entire thing is built upon the concept of force. You shall send your student. You shall subsidize it. You shall pay for it through your tax dollars. And because of that, the the moral incentive to do right is gone. Let's talk to Mariko from Burnsville. Am I pronouncing that right? Mauricio. Mauricio. Sorry about that. It's very simple. It's all about control. The dumber we are, the easier we are to control. And who's going to win? The people that can afford to send people to another country or to a bit better school. So guess what? The higher class that has the money That's right. can't afford that. But the yeah. people that have to go to public school are going to be done. Yeah. Eventually, they don't want to... They're going to have a third grade education just to control us better. Yeah. So which is sad. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a Mexican-American. I'm a citizen. I've been a citizen for 
14 years, and I came to America because everything was about the better life. That's right. And sadly, it's going the wrong way. That's right. And it, and it pisses me off that people are not opening their eyes, and they think that socialism and communism and all that kind of control is good for the country. It's not good for anybody. Right. It's going down the drain. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, if those ways of doing things worked, then the purpose of the wall wouldn't be to keep people out. It would be to keep people in. <laughs> right? Correct. Appreciate Why people want to come in. Exactly. Yeah. Appreciate the call, Mauricio. Let's uh, talk to Ron in Hudson. Welcome to the program. Oh, hey, thanks for taking my call. There's a lot of things that certainly can be said, uh, but I want to respond perhaps uh, to what the caller before the last fella had said about, uh, you know, uh, North Carolina and the needing perhaps to move to Minnesota and then perhaps going to Germany. And he used yeah. the term got to, have to, have to send them here, must send them there, I don't have a choice. Well, the fact of the matter is you always have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having a discussion that was instigated by the uh, proposal of uh, the federal subsidy for uh, pre-K. And ultimately, I'll get to the point, is I thought that it was always going to have support because most parents, not all, and it may sound a little judgmental, but uh, most parents kind of see it as, ooh, another year of free daycare. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the choice always ran. I work two jobs so I can privately educate my children because it's that much of a value to me. And that's really all I had to say. I'll take your response off the air. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the call, Ron. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely correct that we have a choice. And this is something that I struggle with personally. You know, like I, like I stated somewhere in one of my diatribes this evening, my kids are involved in the public education system. Now, you know, the, the reason why people make economic choices any choice, you know, your choice of where you work, your choice of what house you buy, what car you buy, you know, what you do with your free time, any sort of choice you make with your life is is always a consider. It's a, there's always an opportunity cost. That's a concept that they probably don't even teach in high school anymore. That's where I learned about it was in high school. There's an opportunity cost when you choose one thing, it comes at the expense of something else. Right. And so it's this comparison. It's this cost benefit analysis of, you know, where am I going to get the highest value at the lowest cost? Now, you know, sparing you the details of how my wife and I have arrived at the decision that our kids, unfortunately, have to go through the public education system, the, the fact of the matter is, for a lot of folks, they, they, only, they, have, they have a they always you always have a choice, but it becomes a harder choice to take your kid out of the public education system than it is to put them in it. And the, the, the environment that's been crafted by policy has created that circumstance. And so it's this kind of symbiotic relationship where bad decisions by the state create a situation where there's bad decisions by parents. That's the short and tall of it. Closing argument, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.